Okay, listen, just imagine you heard some intro music in I mean, there. They will, they will have heard the intro music. No, no, like, no, no, no. Use your imagination. <laughs> and if you, can't, if you can't remember our intro music, just like put better intro music from your memory in there. Like the Game of Thrones theme tune. Harry Potter's quite a nice one. Or just like um, skip backwards for 30 seconds and listen again from the beginning where like the full intro song will be. It's just us who didn't hear it No, now. no, no, no. Use your imagination. Okay. <laughs> um, uh, welcome to the Plants and Pets podcast where we are back. No, we were back last week, but we're kind of back this week because there was some technical difficulties. <laughs> <laughs> I just took forever to edit it because I was very busy and still am very busy. Um, I mean, you're also recovering. It's 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 allowed. I would say. I just thought I would like no, rub I, it in I your think face. My 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 flu or whatever it was is like two weeks ago now. I think I can't use "I'm recovering" as an excuse anymore. I just had too much other stuff happening. Like golfing, you're no, a golfer golfing, now. Golfing will be tomorrow. Like my first time ever swinging a bat, a stick, stick a golf stick. Club, club. I want to say club. Okay, but swinging a club sounds a bit. Yeah, it's definitely not a racket. I'm, I think we I'm can all agree it's not a racket. In the golf club, and then <laughs> and then you get a sausage, <laughs> and I get a sausage and a beer, and it will be uh, an interesting event, like a first time tomorrow. I don't know how we came up as a group of friends to do this event, but apparently we are doing it. So like, yeah, next next. Are you time. wearing outfits? You should wear no. outfits. You no. must wear outfits. You must have like those high socks I, and like be, a little I'll short be skirt. This. I'll be wearing this little... Yeah, eat the rich shirt. Yeah. At the golf club. Um, the question I wanted to ask you that I mentioned before before we came on air. Um, I saw something on Instagram just now. What, what do you think is the most German thing apart from eating a sausage and drinking beer? What would you say is the most German thing? Like it's a physical thing. And it's like, so there's this really amazing... A Vietnamese woman who's in Germany and she's her name is um, Uyen and uh, we'll link to her her page um, and she's doing all these like cultural revelations about Germany and they're so spot on as like a foreigner going into Germany like every single one I'm just like yes yes it's so true it's so accurate it's it's brilliant and she she said I've just come up with the I've just discovered the most German thing and I thought of the thing before she showed the thing. Like, it immediately popped into my mind what the thing is, and then she brought it out. Oh, no, I'm And curious. I was like, that's I, exactly the thing. I would have probably said, like, the thing, like, we have to press to make potatoes into mash or oh, make spätzle out of it. Oh, you're very close. That's you're what very I close. That's, like, very German. Because I don't, I don't know any other country that uses the, the mash press. <laughs> You're really, really close. Um, it's a similar object related to like eating food, and it's like a completely obscure kitchen tool, and it really fits in with this. Like Germans, like in my mind, in Germany, there's like an implement, a specific implement for everything you need to do. There's like very niche <laughs> tools for things that don't necessarily need niche tools, and this is the nichest of the niche tools. Oh no! I want to like. I know that like a garlic press is um, like. No, we press garlic in other countries. Exactly girl. right, but it's like one of these like <laughs> single purpose tools. Like I always have to saying that I don't want any single purpose tools in my kitchen, mm -hmm. and the garlic press is one of the few things that r literally have only the purpose of pressing garlic. Like a citrus press, you can press like other fruit with it, um, and may, may, like 
many other things like like a grater you can grate many different things with it um and i don't have like a specific potato mash thing i'm just I don't really have thinking that. There was an amazing thread on Twitter a while back where they were, it was um, hacks for, for lab equipment. And I wonder if anybody's ever used a uh, um, garlic press to like press something in the lab. You know, like everybody has these different, mm-hmm. like using I, ordinary things. I could imagine like some, some hard fruit where you want to get like the juices out for some DNA extraction or something. You could I mean, use we use blenders press. to isolate chloroplasts, like to, to do chloroplast and mitochondria isolations you would literally put your plant first in like a kitchen blender and make like a uh, like a smoothie smoothie, and then you add sugar and you add salt it's like yeah kind of salty smoothie not particularly amazing you pretty much drink it in the first steps i think there's nothing in there yet that will kill you at at one point you often do like some extraction with is edta good for you i think it's got a lot of edta ah true yeah do you want to chelate your internal what is that calcium magnesium i I, I think i looked it up that edta can be used like therapeutically but in very different concentrations i mean this is also (laughs) what everybody says isn't that i mean anything you can use therapy Therapeutically, yeah. If you just so, don't but what use is the, the German, amount that will kill you. What is the German thing now? So it's a little thing that um you it's like a metal sort of round thing that you put as a little hat, a metal hat that has a stick coming out of it, and you put the hat on top of a hard boiled eggs, and then you drop a weight or you press the stick, and it makes a perfect cut out circle of the shell of the hard boiled egg, so that you can peel off this circle top. I I know of this thing, but I literally have never, ever experienced anyone who would use this. Like, I would know, like... I have. I was... I was... It was brought to my attention in Germany, and I thought this is the most German thing I've ever seen. Like again, I I haven't seen one of these things for, like, five years, but when this person said, I've got the most German tool ever... This immediately sprung to mind before she showed, like, before it was like, this is the thing. If she doesn't do this thing, she's wrong. And then she did that thing. I was like, this is, I don't even know what it's called, like an egg topper or something. And I don't, I'm not saying that. Oh, there's like a stupid long German word for it that, like, it's meant to be funny. It's like, Eier Sollbruchstellenverursacher or something like this. But I find it ridiculous and stupid to use that word. It's like that, there was that thing that was going around the internet where it was the Google searches by state. And it wasn't the the search that that state, it was like really stupid things like, why is my urine yellow? And like in Wyoming, they were searching for why is my urine yellow or something. It wasn't the the search that was the most popular search in the state. It was the search that was found in that state and least likely to be found in other states. So it was like overrepresented. And I think that's the thing, like, I'm not saying that every German has one of these egg toppers. I'm just saying like, I don't think any other culture, like this is specifically German and all the rest of us are like, have a spoon. <laughs> We've solved yeah. this already with a spoon. I I mean, we we have different ways of doing this, right? Like we also have like a little thing that looks like a, a round disc and then you have sort of um, the handles look like scissor from, from scissors and then when you press it down, there's like spikes coming out mm. in a perfect circle to sort of crunch into the shell. It makes me think shell. of those, um, it's like one of these underground worms that has the teeth that go yeah. inwards and like chomp chomp and like chomps through the you know, some sort of fantasy sci-fi horror worm um yeah but for an egg yeah i mean on amazon they first of all literally have a, ca- a category that's called eier sollbruchstellenverursacher in one word can you, just, 
break that down, what those things are? So, the first I, one is egg. That's egg, all I got. Yeah. Eier. Eier is egg. And then Sollbruchstelle, sorry, a beautifully long word, is like something that's meant to break. Like you, if you have a, a yeah, Sollbruchstelle. Soll is it should, is the Bruck is the breaking and Stelle is the place. So yeah, exactly. The like, should break place. The should so break the egg place. should break place. And then what's the next part? The Ver Verursacher is the one that's causing it. <laughs> So it's the, the 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 one that causes a place that should break in eggs is the Eiersollbruchstellenverursacher. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's a sort happy. of a silly name. Like nobody really uses that. Um, but yeah, but there's like dozens. Okay, but if you again, if you wanted to look that up on Amazon, you would know that word to look that word up on Amazon. Yeah, and like, you and you would find yeah. them. I mean, they they are with everything on Amazon nowadays. They have like titles that are like 60 words long where they try to cram every keyword in there so you can find it with other words as well um like uh executor is one thing that's the, like the top thing here um or eierköpfer so the the egg beheader um things like that but yeah it's i agree it's very german but i also think it's very so I'm just going to Amazon.co.uk. Just as a reminder, don't shop on Amazon. They're evil. Um, and I'm looking for egg beheader. Yeah. As a thing. <laughs> it's it's not a thing here. You've got an egg timer. You've got like an an egg boiler, a separate machine to boil eggs. That's quite stupid. Yeah. Um, what What is the thing? What was it? Egg um, should break place facilitator. <laughs> There's even like a That's dramatically filmed either. video with like just like this little piece of equipment and an egg in like dramatic lighting. Like I have no sound, so I don't know if there's like also dramatic music with it, but it's completely ridiculous. Um, okay, I would like to mention that when I put the egg should break place facilitator in Amazon.co.uk, not the first, but like the fourth was the the little scissory one, the mm. the creepy underground worm thing that goes. Ch -ch -ch -ch. But everything else is just like egg cups and egg ladles, whatever the hell that is, and egg display cabinets in case your eggs are <laughs> not looking beautiful. There's like a little basket that goes round. That's <laughs> I imagine like a, a massive like like you would have a display cabinet for dishes, but you just have that for eggs. And like every well, five days, you completely restock the entire thing. <laughs> Okay, so one of them is a spiral and it looks like a sort of water slide. And that makes sense to me because if you have like hens that are laying eggs, it's good to have them that you know what order they've laid them in. So you take the fresh ones, like mm -hmm. put the fresh ones at the top. But there's another one that looks literally like one of those um, multi-layered, like the tiered cupcake holders. <laughs> and that seems less good to me. Um, <laughs> unless you're really turned on by eggs. If that's <laughs> what gets you going in the morning, who am I to say no? Yeah. <laughs> cool yeah okay agree this is a very german thing although like oh my I god i found it page two craft egg topper it's called a kitchen craft egg topper in english <laughs> oh there's also egg bears it's like a bear and its stomach is where you put the egg in and that's nice ah yeah yeah i'm, I'm seeing is, it now also just like as a, as, as, an, as a holder this is now a podcast about egg bears. That's, um, yeah, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> yeah. What did you do this week, Yaram? 
um, I, I met some friends over the weekend, which was part of the reason why I couldn't get to edit the episode until like this week and publish it. So that's one thing. It was nice being social and stuff. Um, but the thing that I wanted to talk about is that I discovered the joy of reading. Um, I think you told me um, a while ago, you were like, look, I'm reading so many like non-fictional stuff and I picked up just like a fiction book again and it's so much fun and now I did the same and I can say, yes, it is so much fun. Like I'm enjoying think, this um, so much. Like I'm, I'm, I'm looking so much at like horrible news online because I'm, I have a book now that I'm reading and that's really good. I mean, I feel like the first thing to die in the pandemic, like the isolation was this feeling of like creativity i mean not the first thing to die because like there was you know social skills and personal hygiene and other things that went first but like the sense of creativity and like finding joy in reading and writing did go quite fast for me in the isolation lockdown so it's nice to find any activity that kind of stimulates this stuff again yeah uh, i just like i want to say like what the book is but i can't figure out in my kindle how I go back to the home screen. <laughs> I don't know where I have to tap. I think I managed. I know it's from Hank Green, um, and so far I'm like like a quarter through, and it's really, really fun. It's, Do you want to tell me the plot? It's uh, an absolutely remarkable thing from Hank Green, um, and it starts with um, like the, the, the protagonist. She just stumbles across these massive sort of robots in the center like in the middle of new york city and they figure out they like everywhere across the globe um, but they don't do anything and they are just like this weird tourist attraction but nobody knows where they're coming from and what their purpose is and this is then and i don't want to give it like first of all i don't know how it ends because i'm in the first third of it um, but it's really really interesting uh it's really well written it's really fun to read and um yeah, really suspenseful. Like I, I'm staying up way too late because I want to know what's going on with these robot things. Is it more sci-fi or is it more kind of horror sci-fi? It's sci-fi. Like it's more like a okay. fun sci-fi. It's like a, but oh, not cool. like a Douglas Adams silly sci-fi, but more like grounded in our reality, but clearly sci-fi. Like it's. it's well, it it's sounds kind of. Day. um it sounds like John D John Wynnum to me. So he's this guy who wrote like the Midwich Cuckoos or the Kraken Awakes. It's just like, it's a sort of, things are happening and then one day something about the world changes quite dramatically and people have to work out how and what it means and usually yeah. then there's some sort of like threat to humanity for survival because of this new thing. Yeah, I and think it will be something like that. Like so far there is no, I can say that so far the world hasn't changed that much yet. Just everybody's weirded out by the presence of these things and the main protagonist is figuring, figuring stuff out um, but I think it will turn into like one of these things where suddenly the whole world has to figure out a way to deal with the new situation um, uh, I like Hank Green quite a bit I like John Green quite a bit so I was very curious to read this I think oh, wait, Is John Green the one from the Anthropocene Review? Yeah, yeah, they're brothers Oh, yeah, that's an incredible podcast I, I've, I've like finished them all now but yeah. Really amazing. Yeah, and, and Hank Green is a brother of John Green, and Hank Green is doing like SciShow on YouTube. and um, They do something together on YouTube as brothers, right? Don't they I have something? think so as well. But like, yeah, so like Hank Green is a sort of a science educator, um, activist, author stuff, and John Green is like um, mostly an author for like, with like really good essays and, and stuff. So, yeah. 
Yeah, I, I definitely, speaking of, you know, lacking uh, this kind of creativity, like listening to the the John Green, the Anthropocene reviewed these essays. I mean, it's really an essay format and they're so beautifully written. He's reading them out, but it's it's so nicely done. It really made me want to write things again. Like I haven't written properly creatively, not for the blog or not for my personal stuff either for a long time, um, only in my work. And I was like, wow, like what you can do with words, like the emotions you can pull out if you... Yeah. It was really, really inspiring. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I feel the same way. I was reading, um, but what did you do, Tegan, on the weekend? Tegan, I... <laughs> well, I, I was, while I was exploring the world of books, Tegan, on my own, how did you spend the last week to weekend and the time until now? I mean, the thing is, like, <laughs> is this like a, is this a real, natural, realistic way of phrasing that question? I like, I like the the special voice that you added. Um, <laughs> Yoram didn't ask me what I did with my time, and I got offended, and I made him say that four times. Um, I, I went to um, the John Sloan, so, not Sloan, Sone, Sony, Sone Museum. Um, he's just like an English architect who was did many important architectural things and he had this really huge amazing house which then when he died became a museum and it's not usually the sort i'm not super into architecture um it's not really the sort of thing i would go to my friend sort of invited me along um but it was really an incredible house like multiple stories and he just had this kind of more is more attitude to decorating like he just oh put more things to the point where it was just I mean a lot of it was kind of Roman statue ruiny kind of stuff like stuff that was also clearly stole like there was there was also like a sarcophagus like a, a fit like an Egyptian sarcophagus um but like all these like statue replicates and then stuff that looked like it was actually just like chipped off a ruin in Greece or Rome like it just looked like it had been nicked um Really insane, but amazing to see, and like a really beautiful house because you know he wasn't architecture, so like the design of the house was really incredible and impressive. But his his life story was also just like bat bonkers. Like he had two sons. He decided that he wanted them to become architects because he was going to have this like dynasty of architects, and then they kind of didn't want to. Like, and he <laughs> bought a house, and he bought the house with the intention that they would like be inspired by the house and become architects or something i don't know like and then they didn't want to become architects so he like sulked and sold the house and then <laughs> like his children they got married but he didn't want them to get married to the people he got married to and then like apparently one of the children wrote a letter saying i have married agnes out of spite to you like just to spite you father um and these two children, I, I don't know, the description, on, like, the story itself we got told at the house was already insane, but the description on Wikipedia is also, like, an extra level of insane because it feels like it's clearly from his point of view. So, it's, like, it's he has two, two sons, John and George, and it says, John was lazy and suffered from ill health. Like, maybe he wasn't lazy, maybe he was just actually really ill. Like, maybe <laughs> that's, <laughs> we're adding some, some you know, ableist language there and suffered from ill health. And he actually died at 30, I think. So, like, he wasn't just, like, ill. He was, you know, really quite ill. So um, lazy that he died. So like lazy he that he just didn't bother living one day. Um, obviously, we're joking. This is, like, insane. And then, like, George had an inc uncontrollable temper, which I think is probably true. Um, but George was the one who lived... But he, 
you know, got into debt. And in those days, you had to, this is the 1800s, you had to go to debtor's prison if you went to debt. And then he did fraud and somebody was trying to, like, put him in prison for doing fraud. And his, like, mother is paying off these people. And he keeps on, like, asking for more money from his insanely rich parents. Like, his father is doing very, very well, but his father doesn't want him to be paid off. And at one point, like... He he needs money and like the father doesn't want to give him money and he's like well if not I'm going to become an actor and then his father's like oh no not an actor and gives him money because like being an actor is you know the worst possible thing he was like a playwright I think so that was already kind of quite low in the time but then at one point um he refused to pay his son's debt and in response the son like wrote like used his skills as a writer to write two anonymous articles about how <laughs> his father's architecture was <laughs> which is just like high level petty and then the father found out and apparently the mother found out and was like this will be the death of me i'm so wounded to my soul that my son will attack my husband which i think realistically she did not give a crap like, i don't think she ever said that there's I, I don't know what the proof is i haven't really like researched this but this feels very much like the father's point of view saying that your mother mm-hmm. anyway she dies cool john's already dead because he was too lazy to live george is the only one left but like john senior the old dude will not talk to his son so john senior like lives alone in this house for 20 years and when he dies the reason this is now a museum is because he deliberately made his house a museum just so that his son would never see a penny of the money like he didn't want his son to inherit everything anything and the only thing the son inherited was the two articles the son wrote framed and accompanied with a note bearing what apparently was his mother's like dying words of this shall be my death blow like that's <laughs> the and you just think this this old man was in this house this huge house alone with servants but like alone for like 17 years just like marinating in the juices of his angst and his frustration just like just you wait when I die I'm gonna say like you know you know he had this prepared and he would like open his his bedside like chamber like look in there and like look at these nasty little notes he wrote and just like feel like this nasty joy or what he was gonna leave like what a ridiculous person like I'm sure he was a genius well done him but are you kidding me like are you kidding me get over yourself this is just Uh, It sounds like life goals to me. Wow, can you imagine? You have a little son. Can you imagine your son disappointing you so much that you're like, I'm going to make sure that when I die, he... Because, I mean, also, like, when somebody dies, usually you have to go and hear them read their will out, right? I'm sure George thought he was getting some money, so he went to hear the will, and then, like, they're like, ha-ha, instead of will, you get this spite from beyond the grave. Like... (laughs) <laughs> and John Senior is just like, hey, 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 George will have to see hear my like death spite. Ha ha. <laughs> yeah, wow. I, mean, I, I think in Germany we don't read out the will, so it would be less dramatic here. Um I like don't we know. don't I have don't know like the cinematic the cinematic style that you see um where then the whole family gathers and I recently watched Knives Out, that's pretty much um a similar story with like an old father who has all of the money and like a big family and um he hates them all for different reasons because they're all like one way or another they're like terrible people uh, but then he dies and then they have like the whole plot developing but they're like 
Yeah. I mean, were they were they actually terrible? Or like here, the yeah. story is very much that these these the sons were terrible, but one of them <laughs> was ill and therefore lazy. I'm not sure that he was really lazy. Like, it seems very biased towards the famous person in this narrative. Yeah. Yeah, I agreed. But yeah, in the movie, um, they are like, they all have like massive flaws. Like so some of them are like terrible liars. Others are like just wasting their father's money for for like drug addictions um, and uh, or just pretending to run an important business, but then not actually doing anything. They're just like sort of leeching off their father's work. Like he, the father is like an amazing writer and like one of the sons is like his publisher, but he has like, he has no skill in publishing. He just like his father's books are all bestsellers because like no matter how you would put them out, they will become bestsellers. So he really has no skill in his job. Um, stuff like that. But, but like, I, I sometimes also wonder, so this is like somebody who's very, very po- like very well off very like obviously very like a great at his job great architect like doing very well from himself and then if he has these two sons who are like quite crap <laughs> like at some point you've got to sort of say yes they become adults but like if they were so crap maybe maybe part of the reason they're crap is that you were crap like were they crap in a vacuum or did you sort of help them become crap like yes <laughs> maybe <laughs> i know nobody was seeing therapists back then and they all like all like oh, we were listening to the story these these um the the volunteers at the museum were really like great and well informed they're telling the stories and i'm just like yeah this is amazing but also like get a therapist like <laughs> don't write a letter to your father saying i have married agnes to spite you like instead just like <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I would say it's that, bizarre. like, even if it wasn't out of spite, if I if I had such a father, I would just give that as the reason, just to know that it annoys him. Um, but I would also try to like make my own living without being dependent on him anymore. But yeah, yeah, but it's also the thing, like, like also, if my parents would be spited by the person I married, like, again, is that reflecting only on me, or is that reflecting on them? That like, like that they don't want me to be happy like that just seems like they're the problem still mm-hmm. Poten- anyway <laughs> <laughs> so that was joyful i am i'm so excited that i can now visit london and see things and learn about all the petty petty nasty <laughs> histories like all the weird stuff that's been going on in this country um <laughs> and then i get to discover now yeah yeah i can't wait to hear more but i imagine like in my head this is like common like in the in the 19th century everybody was like that like every as soon as a father had money he became this type of person and all of the mm. kids became this type of kids and then you would have this sort of thing happening i guess a part of me is like there because some of these things apparently they've written down, right? So like this, I have married Agnes despite you and father is apparently from a letter from George to his mother. And this to me, like I can imagine somebody tweeting it these days, but the idea of like taking out your quill and maybe they had pens then. I don't know when pens are invented, but like I'm imagining like a quill and some ink and like carefully writing this and then sitting on it, getting somebody to send it. It's just so much. Yeah, It's a lot of effort for being petty. 
Like personally, I tried to keep a, a diary for like a few years. Well, not even a few years. Some some weeks when I was um, a teenager, and I I wrote things down, and then I read them back two weeks later. And I was like, I sound like an idiot and an angsty angsty teenager, and I immediately destroyed everything. <laughs> and I just feel like George could have like gone back, read what he wrote, and then thrown it in the fire. <laughs> Oh yeah, that would have. Although then we wouldn't have had all the drama now. Like it's what fuels our drama now. Like if they, I think, I mean this goes now way too far. Um, to to think about, like, do did we always have, like, an urge to present this side of us to the public, and we did it like two hundred years ago. We sent Which petty side? letters, like the the drama side, the the like. I did this to spite you, sort of like, like the stuff that we would like sh- uh, like post on Twitter these days when you have like like a well, weird Twitter Well, that's another question. Like, like we know that he sent this letter. I have married Agnes to spite you and father, but who made that public? Like somebody has. I mean, like, somebody must have gotten then the, like the collection of the letters from because then they also they all kept the letters. Like, I don't have. Okay, today today I was eating an ice cream. And like I, I ate the ice cream and about two bites in I got bored of the ice cream and I thought, I wish Yoram was here because usually I just used to hand you my ice cream so that you would finish my ice cream when I got bored of them. Like that was our symbiotic relationship and that's why we're friends. And then I thought, <laughs> oh, but Yoram, even if he was here, he wouldn't eat my ice creams anymore because he has to always eat the second hand food from his child. So now like <laughs> his child is like the one who gets to give him the ice creams. And then I felt sad and slightly resentful that your two-year-old gets to give you the ice creams and I don't have that role in your life anymore. And like, <laughs> I could write that down in a letter and send that to you. I could be like, dear Yoram, today it occurred to me that I'm resentful that I don't get to give you my secondhand ice creams because you have born offspring. But I don't. Yeah, because you're t- saying this now on the record on a podcast. But <laughs> if you could not do that, like if if we could not easily pick up a phone or like an internet connection, then you might have written me that because then maybe we would Can be you like ten pals. A, a package. The package. What I would do with the package? I put like my my half-eaten ice cream like in an envelope, <laughs> and then with a letter, and be like, I know you don't love this. You want this because you love your child more. <laughs> Yeah, this is what you've done for me. <laughs> my heart is broken and I weigh like 10 pounds more because you don't eat my secondhand ice cream. <laughs> yeah, just like the, the, the wooden stick from the center. Just like, yeah. just that, send that. And be like, because you have selfishly chosen to procreate. I now <laughs> must suffer. <laughs> <laughs> I finished this ice cream on my own just to spite you. <laughs> I didn't finish it. This this country has awful ice creams, and I, I threw ice cream in the bin, Yoram, and that's on you. Like, that ice cream in the bin, that's not my fault. Like, that's that's your fault. Okay. I'm, 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 I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm, I'm really sorry that I could not eat a terrible UK ice cream for you. So shall we talk a little bit about plant science now? We should, we should. the paper of the week um this week i picked a paper um and it's a story about um sea slugs and i realized that 
like after I picked the paper and read through it, that it's actually from authors that I read another paper before. So it made me happy to read sort of a follow-up. The paper that we're talking about today is called Genetic Autonomy and Low Singlet Oxygen Yield Support Kleptoplast Functionality in Photosynthetic Sea Slugs by Vesa Hafurine uh, from the la uh, lab of Esatistiarvi and... I'm sorry for my pronunciation of these Finnish names, published in the Journal of Experimental Botany um, in July this year. So, sea slugs, Yoram. You kind of love these sea slugs, I have to say. I Yeah. It was if you pick a paper, I would guess it was about sea slugs or CRISPR-Cas9. That would be my... <laughs> <laughs> my strongest or maybe bananas i think bananas is also a popular topic yeah. for you so tell me about these sea slugs and why they hold your heart so dear i mean these these sea slugs um are these like small creatures they're like a couple of millimeters to sometimes up to like very few centimeters um large sometimes you see pictures online where you don't really have a reference and i i always imagined they were like like approximately the size of my hand but they're so much smaller mm. they're more like a fingernail um and they are very well known like this 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 family of sea slugs um because they steal chloroplasts they are green they have these like green spots all over or just like green green um areas uh and they have parts of plants incorporated and that made them famous I want to mention that they have the the kind of group name. There's like a, a name called Sacoglossens, uh, yeah. um, but they're also called solar powered sea slugs, which sort of alludes at the fact that they're they're stealing these chloroplasts and and using solar energy, and they're also called sap sucking sea slugs. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, they, this is they, all they, the same thing. They eat these algae and they sort of nibble on the end and then they suck out the content <laughs> of the algae. Um, and then they digest most of it, but not the, the chloroplasts. They keep them for a little bit. And apparently there's like almost 300 different species that belong to these little sap suckers. Mm -hmm. And some of them, they just keep the chloroplasts for just a little while, just like a, a couple of hours. And then they also digest them. So they just don't sort of take take a slow slow approach to, to digesting them where you could even wonder if this is actually sort of retaining them or does it just take a while to di digest them? Like if I would eat like a heavy roast dinner, it would also take me a while to digest that. I, nobody would say or like, like a oh, snake I'm, eating a wallaby. I'm, I'm stealing the roast dinner and then keeping that active for longer. Um, but then there's some of them that do this literally for months that they can keep these um, chloroplasts alive inside their bodies. Yeah, I think well, people have like broken them down into sort of short term, which is like less than 10 days, you know, a couple of hours up to 10 days. So this is just like, you know, Yarm and his roast dinner. And then if it's <laughs> 10 days to several months, then we start thinking, okay, that's a, that's a long term retention. And so for a while now, and I think the earliest papers are somewhere from the 70s, um, people try to figure out like, what do they actually do with the chloroplasts? Because... Um, the first idea that we have is just, okay, they keep them because then the chloroplasts do photosynthesis and then that powers the sea slugs and they have to eat less because they get some of the photosynthesis. This is really hard to sort of to to prove or there's like um, to find good evidence for that, um, that we like in the last 50 years have, haven't had like a conclusive idea. I mean, you, you called them already like the solar powered sea slugs. But we have very little evidence so far that they are actually solar powered. 
because I also didn't realize that it was so long. Like I sort of became aware of this, you know, maybe a few, you know, five years ago kind of thing. I didn't realize that it was, it really was the seventies when people sort of suggested. I wonder if if these chloroplasts they eat are still chloroplasting away and doing photosynthesis. I didn't realize it was so long. Yeah, yeah. I, I and I only picked that up because it's mentioned in um, uh, like in the paper that we read today that they had like some citations from like nineteen seventy two. Um, where they talked about like the, the robustness of some plastids and how like how long they're kept. Um, so just to like shout out, Yoram has like the reason I was ragging on Yoram for loving these slugs is because we've talked about <laughs> them on the podcast before. But you also, I think Yoram, you've written a an article on our blog plantsandpets.com, which we'll link to in the show notes, um, where you talk yeah. about how amazing these little sluggies are. I think literally like one of the very first articles I ever wrote for this uh, that we didn't publish. It was sort of in our prototyping phase. Was about these sea slugs. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and then like we it it, it wasn't a, g- a good article back then but then there was this new paper and then we actually published the story um, and what they it's from the same group that we're talking about today what they um, looked at back then was um, do these, chlor- these these chloroplasts they're called kleptoplasts because they're stolen um, do they yeah, actually stay active like does the photosynthetic machinery in there continue to work like because if we just observe them and they are green, it just tells us that there's chlorophyll, but there's more than chlorophyll mm. needed for photosynthesis. So they were looking at that. Well, I mean, even, even if the chloroplasts are kind of like there intact, like it's a full chloroplast, that doesn't mean it's there intact and photosynthesizing. Like that's an extra step. That's kind of something else. Yeah. And I think like one of the cool things is this group is the group that established sort of the model system. So they actually managed to grow the slug and the algal that it's eating inside the lab and this is like this is not trivial i mean it's quite an important part of studying things in lab it's actually getting your organism to you know reproduce or even just grow under lab conditions it can be quite tricky i mean think about even something as basic as like getting pandas to have sex in a zoo like sometimes like things that work completely well out there in nature they just don't work well in the lab and you need to get really standardized way where you can reproducibly grow things so that you can observe them in a nice way so that's where this group kind of comes in yeah yeah especially if you have to culture two organisms right like if Mm. you want to establish any plant that you find in some forest somewhere in the lab then you just need to keep that one plant alive although i mean even with plants it's often the case where like you've got this plant but then to grow it in the lab you've changed the environment you're putting it in this often more sterile condition and it might not function you know it doesn't have the bacteria or the mm-hmm. fungi or whatever it needs to grow and you know a lot of plants they, they need these mycorrhizal fungi these fungi that interact with the roots of the plant to have the symbiosis to really grow properly and they might grow artificially in the lab but that's maybe not representative of what you would see in nature so mm-hmm. it, is, it is a thing also even with plants but yeah, yeah here I that's mean, a good point yeah you got a slug. A slug seems like an extra level of difficulty over an Arabidopsis, I would say. <laughs> yeah. Um, but before we jump into the results, I want to briefly talk about, like, why is it actually so hard? Like, what, what do we, if we want to have chloroplasts that are not inside a plant cell anymore or algal cell anymore, like, what do we actually have to do? Because, like, there's, like, we can isolate chloroplasts, but keeping them alive is not so easy. Um, so I want to like briefly talk about that. Um, so yeah, chloroplasts, we sort of gl- glossed over it already, but they 
this is where photosynthesis happens. So this is where mm. like light energy comes in and then you have like a photosynthetic machine. And today I will not attempt to go through like the <laughs> electron flows and everything. I just say like, it's a machine and you have like light energy that comes in and the machine turns it into chemical energy that the plant can use. Which is basically sugar. That's- which is essentially sugar in the end. Um, it fixes like carbon from the air in the process and so on. Um, so it either puts the energy into sugar or it puts the energy into heat when it can't make sugar for some whatever reason it then just like puts the energy into heat and gets rid of it before it does any damage to the machine itself um but parts of that machine they are very easily damaged especially in the beginning of the machine and they need to be constantly repaired and this is where the rest of the cell becomes important because this repair yeah, I mean, I guess like you're saying it's easily damaged, but like these are like machine, like these, this it's protein complex. They're working, they're capturing the energy of the sun. Like they're like, <laughs> like the sun is throwing them this baseball of like pure energy and they're grabbing that and like wrangling it into control and using that to like change carbon dioxide into like sugar. Like, sure, they're easily damaged, but, like, can you rank... Like, I mean, when sun (laughs) touches you, you get sunburn. Like, what are you doing? They're fixing carbon with sun energy. Like, it's just... (laughs) They're doing this insanely difficult task, and sometimes, like, they don't win, and the sun causes them damage instead of them, like... Yeah, causing the sun damage. Like, <laughs> I didn't want to sound that as like a qualitative like it's description very, it was of me. Very where dismissive I'm just like, is all I'm saying. Like you're yeah, very dismissive so of the photosystems. Yeah, the photosystems uh, are Such, so um, sensitive. Little liberal ice spurt. What is it called? Uh, ice snowflakes. 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 <laughs> snowflakes. Yeah. Photosynthetic snowflakes. So they need to go to a safe space. No, um, <laughs> they they need to be repaired, and for that repair, like it's a complicated process with many things involved but a lot of the things that are involved come from outside of the chloroplast um there's like a whole evolutionary history because that explains why the chloroplast is now completely self-contained and has everything that it needs in its own repertoire um but i think the basic thing is like the chloroplast itself it has its own genome and this genome can make about 120 proteins we like on average 100 or so proteins it can make um and to to make photosynthesis work, we need three thousand proteins. So all of like three thousand minus one hundred—that's quite simple math. We can do that. Two thousand nine hundred. Those all have to come from outside the chloroplast. So that's like in the like they're made in the nucleus, and then they're like, um, the, sorry, the genes are in the nucleus. The proteins are made in the cytosol, and then they have to get shipped into the chloroplast from outside. Yeah. And that's what Yoram is saying. Like if you just have a chloroplast without all of that external help. You've got, you know, a few minutes and then everything's going to chaos. Yeah. And that's why if we take, for example, it's very easy to isolate chloroplasts from spinach. You essentially make a smoothie out of it and then filter it a little bit and then you have the chloroplast extracted. But if you put them in the sun, they will make it a couple of minutes. Um, if the temperatures are, are favorable, maybe half an hour or a bit longer. But then they die. They're dead. And they don't repair themselves anymore because they can't. Um, so if we want to... Um, half the chloroplast exist outside of a cellular environment, then we have um, to make sure of two things. First of all, the the machine that makes the photosynthesis this uh, must not break down or must be repaired enough that it keeps working. And then we have to make sure that it actually turns the chemical the the light energy into chemical energy and doesn't just like try to get rid of it as heat. These are the two things that we have to 
have, if we want to have like a working chloroplast that does photosynthesis outside of a cell, for example, in a sea slug. Um, and this is where this paper comes in because they are looking at parts of this, this question. Um, yeah, and here I really want to mention something that I love that was my, like something the authors wrote in their paper that really, you know, hits my plot-loving heart. They said the sarcoglossin, just as a reminder, that's the slug. The the slug's ability to sequester plastids tends to distract attention away from the unique feature of the sequestered organelle. And the organelle is the chloroplast. So they're basically like, you guys are so fixated on how this slug is green, but you're not looking at how awesome this algae is that's being eaten, that mm-hmm. its chloroplasts are not bursting the second, like not dying the second they enter the slug. Like, you think the slug is cool? Uh-uh. The slug is not cool. What is cool are these chloroplasts. So this <laughs> yes. group wants to look into why these chloroplasts are so amazing. Yeah. Um, and, I mean, it's pretty much like giving away the whole <laughs> the whole point of the paper. It's like, the magic is in the chloroplast. It's not the sea slug that does some magic to it to keep it alive, to pretend to be a plant cell. Yeah. It's the a sea chloroplast. slug just happened upon these awesome like they were lucky let's be honest (laughs) um yeah so so the first step in this like photosynthetic machine um is is a photosystem that we talked about the photosystem too and as it is such a sensitive snowflake um and gets damaged um it needs to be repaired and part of the repair cycle are like two uh, like three main things that the authors describe first of all is like the protein itself d1 it's the one that gets damaged and has to be taken out and then a okay, new this, one has to this be This is able. the first protein complex that is catching all of that energy and helping to turn it into sugars, like taking the sun. And it's got this this core bit, this part of it that's really important called the D1 protein. And that's right at the center of action and it gets it gets smashed up by light quite often. It's quite fragile, I would say. Yeah, it's like a delicate tool that you use in a workshop and like sometimes it breaks, but then you get a new one and then you continue the work and that's what the plant is doing there and to get it out there and to repair it there's like an enzyme it's a protease so it cuts down proteins it's called ftsh1 in my in my head it's just always called like fish um, i read it as fish every time like yeah. i yeah so fish, fish. Um, the fish protein the fish protein cuts out the the, the one and it, it works because we are underwater here in a sea slug so it's the fish protein um that cuts out the broken d1 can you just imagine like our old boss or reviewers of our papers reading like like listening to us call this the fish protein and just be like <laughs> just no this is you're embarrassing the entire field now it's clearly not a fish protein um so yeah but this, um, the fish protein is the do- second part do do add us if you've ever thought of FTSH as fish protein. <laughs> yes. I think I think we're not the only ones. Yeah, we 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 we're not alone in this. And then the third part that's important for this repair process is sort of a helper protein that helps the fish getting made. Um, so all three of them are important for this process to work, but not all of all three of them are in the chloroplast genome in all plants. Like yeah. very often at least two of them, the, the fish protein and the helper protein, made it out of the chloroplast genome and therefore have to be imported again and then you get run into all of the trouble. Like, oh, if there is no outside anymore, I can't import it from there. So I can't repair my photosystem. Yeah. So it's in a rabidopsis and like in most plants that we kind of study and are familiar with, that D1, that delicate snowflake that's catching the light, that guy is in the chloroplast genome and the other two are outside. So... 
you might expect that to also be the case in the algae. But the algae is actually, it's a little bit different. So although... Like it is green, it is photosynthesizing, but it doesn't belong to the clade of green algae. It belongs to sort of a slightly separate evolutionary group, which is red algae. Um, it's actually called a yellow-green algae, but it's derived from red algae. And what happens is sort of there was this original thing where chloroplasts sort of were invented. So um, a green thing got eaten by an, a single-celled animal-like thing, and that green thing slowly became... Um, the chloroplast was like a cyanobacteria became a chloroplast but that then some of them developed into plants and some other of them got sort of eaten again there was like a secondary event and that became this so it's like it's quite it's quite evolutionarily far away it's quite distant Mm -hmm. um, from what we normally think of as both plants and green algae and because of that we can expect that it might have some differences in the way you know its genomes work so where these the d1 and the helper and the protease are found um and that is the case here right yeah they have all three of these important parts for the repair machinery all of them are in the chloroplast genome so you have already like one prerequisite is that you are able to repair your um you can repair your your photosynthetic machine um, better than the ones that can't import the um, can't import these players anymore. Um, for example, they combi- compare that to spinach, and in spinach you don't have that. Um, like in spinach, they re- rely on the fish protein being made in the cytosol, so in the rest of the cell, and then imported back into the chloroplast. I mean, I guess the important part is here, we can't really say, like, why that's happened. Why, like, in one evolutionary branch, these the helper and the protease have moved to the nucleus. They, they originally were in this, this green cyanobacteria, but over time they got, like, taken out and put in the nucleus. And that gives the nucleus more control of the chloroplast, so it's, like, really useful for the nucleus. He can, like, be the puppet master. But it, it's not super clear why in this algae this didn't happen, I don't think. Um mm-hmm. And like for us, we can look at it now and be like, oh, well, it makes sense because if you have these these protease and helpers in the chloroplast, you can have repair better and that helps to have a more stable chloroplast. But we're looking at it from this very human point of view where we already have sort of a th- an event, this, this, this more stable chloroplast, and then we're justifying it based on the information. But that's not how evolution works. Like that yeah. wasn't, you know, us, were, like that's not necessarily what happened. And there's, there's still a lot of debate about why some of the genes, like so many of the, the cyanobacteria originally had a lot of its own genes. It, it was fully functional as an, an individual. And as it gradually evolved into a chloroplast after it got taken in, a lot of the genes sort of left the nucleus and some of them just disappear entirely. And there's a lot of debate about why genes left and why other genes didn't leave, like which ones went and which ones came. We, we don't really fully understand that, I think, still. And it's not clear why, it's not clear at least to me, like, why in this this um, algae that's eaten by a slug, why these these guys have all hung around. Yeah. And in the paper now, they did not only look at the presence in the genome, they actually, like, they looked if this, the, the genes are actively expressed, and they are. Mm-hmm. They could show that in the algae, you have, like, more expression um, after, like, days in isolation. I have, like, seven days in isolation, Um um these these what does it mean in isolation when when you've taken the chloroplast out of the algae okay yeah and when you've made your smoothie 
exactly when you've made your smoothie and just kept them i i guess like i didn't read the materials but i i guess in the cold at least like not at like yeah warm like just on the bench top probably like in U- the fridge. usually cold and dark is what we do yeah. to keep chloroplasts a bit alive and happy but still they were um like they were making these repair machinery proteins so that shows us that the algae is actually able to even without the rest of the cell, it can run repair ma- uh, machinery. And they also did like some recovery experiments, which I found quite clever, um, where they had the, the algae in the dark and then they measured like how active the photosynthetic machinery is. And then it has sort of its full potential because there's like mm-hmm. no light damage. Then they blasted it with highlight. So if damage happens, it happens at this point. So they got sunburned. And then they put them back in the dark and then measured again after a while to see if it recovers. Like, does the sunburn heal or does it stay burned? Um, yeah. And they found that it does heal in the isolated algae chloroplasts. Um, Do they compare that to the spinach ones? I think they did as well, yeah. Um, and the spinach, you didn't have the same recovery. Like the spinach mm-hmm. never fully recovered from this, uh, from, from the same treatment. So basically what we learned from this paper is that the algae because of these special chloroplasts which have already these three components needed to to fix breakages in the photosynthetic machinery they've basically set themselves up to be stolen like they're <laughs> perfectly and if, again like there's no intent here they didn't want to be stolen the, the algae doesn't want to be eaten but as it turns out well done slugs because you've eaten the exact right algae that lets the chloroplast hang around and yeah. Still work for months. Yeah, it's like a strong independent chloroplast and then that gets taken advantage of by the sea slug. Um. Okay, so so <laughs> this is very this is great, but what what are we still missing here? It's it's still not completely convincing that the chlor- that the the slugs are using their stolen chloroplast their kleptoplasts to get energy. So what do we still need? Yeah, we still don't know whether they actually turn the light energy into chemical energy because in the old study and the new study, they looked at like individual players and they could show that they are stable, but these are just the ones that sort of take in the energy, the stuff that then actually turns the the light energy into chemical energy, namely like the carbon fixing cycle and the ATP synthase. Um, we don't know if these two guys um, like stay active, like these two part of the machine that are very important to actually like convert uh, the light energy into something that the cell can use, we don't know if these work. Um, so so far we not just know that the photosynthetic machine in itself stays, like can can continue to repair itself and can stay stable, much more stable than spinach would be in the same conditions. Um, I just had the idea, and that's not in the paper, but I wanted for myself like maybe the function of these kleptoplasts is like, I mean, twofold. One thing, and that's what I wrote in the old article, is like they just stay fresh for longer. So that's already an advantage. So the slug needs to sap a lot of, uh, suck a lot of sap for a week and then it can for a month like live off that because it has sort of its built-in fridge with the kleptoplasts. But Mm -hmm. maybe the fact that they are still able to like take up light energy um, and convert it maybe they do convert it into heat and that's also a function. Maybe it sort of helps to create sort of a micro heater in, in the slug that um, just makes it grow a little bit better. I mean, they are not like mammals. They don't 
have their own like uh, body temperature but still we know that living creatures and plants as well like they can produce heat even though they're like sort of cold-blooded i mean with plants they're not blooded but like there's usually like yeah. cold, cold creatures um, or room temperature creatures but you're right there's, there's there's still benefits of being warmer like you have enzymatic functions like based purely on chemistry that would work more efficiently if you have a little bit of warmth so yeah so that's my that's my interpretation from the whole thing is like they probably or like i haven't seen any evidence yet that they actually make sugar these kleptoplasts but maybe they're useful in another way like they're not only stored for like being eaten later but they maybe are useful because they are a little bit warm and that helps the slug Cool. So just as a reminder, if you want to read the original article that Yoram wrote, we will put the link in the show notes. And Yoram, can you remind us of what this paper is called? Um, the paper is called Genetic Autonomy and Low Singlet Ox- Oxygen Yields Support Kleptoplast Functionality in Photosynthetic Sea Slugs by Vesa Hafurene, published in Journal of Experimental Botany in July this year. And that link will also be in the show notes if you want to go and read the full thing. And are there beautiful pictures of slugs in that paper? I'm afraid not. There's like some cool micrographs, like some electron microscopy images of structures of the kleptoplast inside the slug. But this okay, one... if you want to see slugs, you're going to have to go to the Sacoglossa Wikipedia page. Yeah. Or read the, our article on plants and pets because that very like the very first link in the article is like an art is like another post with like 50 beautiful pictures of weird sea slugs. So if you enter that, this is the route to go. If you're into slugs, this is the way to go. <laughs> this is where the fun begins. This is where the fun begins. This is where the fun begins. I mean, I, I have something I can start with, which I mm-hmm. think will excite Yoram in some ways. Um, this is a publication that came out in PLOS One only a day or two ago, um, on the 15th of September. It's by Moe, Moes um, and colleagues. And it's development of non-transgenic glyphosate-tolerant wheat by tiling. Oh. Um, so glyphosate is what a lot of you might know as Roundup. Um, so Roundup-ready plants are these genetically modified plants that have been developed largely by the company Monsanto, which is now owned by Bayer. And it's it's kind of a really big discussion about you know the ethics of having these plants and whether glyphosate is problematic for insects, specifically bees. Um, and there's been a lot of regulation in the EU against GMOs that is quite, I think, quite strongly linked to the public argument against um, Monsanto and glyphosate and GMOs. They're all very closely tied together. Yeah. So I think this is like a really interesting publication because now if we have these wheat plants, and I think they've they've only just been identified now. I'm not sure if they'll ever become marketable it's it's by a research group i'm not sure if they have even any links to industry or like particularly big players like monsanto to get them onto the market but to me this is quite interesting because the method they use to develop these plants is not considered as gmos so theoretically these plants could be used in the european union or in other places where the regulations against genetic modification are quite strong Mm-hmm. Um, and that to me is interesting because now you're separating the arguments of, you know, GMOs are bad versus glyphosate is bad versus the big, uh, you know, evil corporation of Monsanto is bad. And I think these are three separate arguments that also often get put together. And I think putting them together is problematic um, 
particularly for science and particularly for food security um, in the developing world. So I think I'm kind of I'm kind of curious about this. Just to mention. Um, it doesn't use it's not a GMO by definitions but of course to make these to make glyphosate tolerant plants you need to mutate an, an enzyme and to mutate the enzyme they've used EMS which is basically throwing chemicals at seeds and chemically mutating um, lots of places and then using um, this tiling method I'm not going to go into that now but like Mostly because I haven't researched how it exactly works. I'm not going to go into that now. <laughs> um, but then using this method to like, so tiling is a method that, where you um, basically can rapidly recognize um, mutations to a specific gene of interest. Um, so they still have used mutagenesis, but by a lot of GMO definitions, mutagenesis in these old school ways, like using radiation or chemistry, that is completely okay. What is not okay is doing targeted changes by like genome editing or, you know, mm-hmm. insertion. So I, I find this quite interesting. I, it's, it's a very new study. I, I really want to know what happens just because it's something like, I think you and I are both really fascinated with how this debate works and how the science matches the public opinion matches like the legislation matches what ultimately happens um in the field and the fact that we now have this something that has glyphosate tolerance but is is not owned by monsanto as far as i can tell and is is not um is not a gmo like it changes things a little bit i think yeah although we had like other examples in the past of like things that had the same function as gmo but then were developed using traditional tools to sort of show like look first of all the thing that the gmo does is not unnatural um and also it took us much longer to get there like the gmo is like i mean with glyphosate i i don't have the number in my head but it's like 20 30 years old that we have that like like Mm -hmm. in in, like in industrial lines like in production lines like from understanding it in the lab to getting it on the field there's a big period in there as well um so like i do i was looking through this paper and trying to sort of i was thinking about how long this could have taken to do this because like this tiling or tilling method it's supposed to be like a rapid way to find mutations in your gene of interest but they do mention in the in the materials and methods that when they started the study the wheat genome wasn't available and then i was like wait haven't we had the wheat genome for some years now but i think i wasn't sure i think there was an ancestral wheat genome that came out in like 2018 but the 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 full wheat genome like wheat is a very complicated genome there's basically six genomes in one it's it's chaos um it's huge and massive and messy so it's quite a recent thing that we've we've had this information um and i think that only came out in 2020 so mm-hmm. i couldn't work out if they'd been doing the research for like three or four years or just a few years i mean anyway to get a paper after three or four years is quite normal these days you don't yeah, usually yeah. get a paper after six months of research right so yeah, but it's also like it's not only like the individual research, but also developing the methods, like having mm-hmm. having a genome available, having the tilling um, available, like in it, like having this method developed to a point that you can rapidly use it. Like all of that took longer than developing the tools for GMO, and um, that's it. Like, I, mean, I, no, I, I don't like, want to no, say no, that no, this, this makes like it... also for the GMO you needed to have all those tools. Like, I mean, CRISPR Cas nine was something that has only come up for it. Like, this is this is a whole they, new thing. Like, but they did like GM wheat before they had the, the wheat genome because you could do that already. You don't need yeah, to okay, have okay. the full genome. 
to but do you a didn't, gene cross. You, no, no, but you didn't need the full genome to do this either. So they, they did this before yeah. the full gene. So you didn't... Yeah, yeah that's I, true. I see, I see your point about time. Like, generally, traditional breeding has taken longer than um, using the modern techniques we have. And, I mean, even traditional breeding that we call traditional breeding has generally quite strongly relied on these, like, random mutagenesis tools of, like, blasting things with chemicals or blasting things with, yeah. like, UV radiation as and, a way to... And also traditional breeding sounds like this is what we've done for, like, thousands of years. But no, like, the way we do traditional breeding is something that we've done since, like, 1950s or, like, maybe Look, a little I'm bit a millennial if it was before the 1990s it's traditional yarn like <laughs> I came into the lab in about 2006 and if it happened before that it's like <laughs> it's, it's ancient established knowledge. it's ancient it's old <laughs> like it's really don't you know the thing where sometimes like, there's like this mental thing where like for me I started it in the lab properly in maybe 2008 or 9 or 10 and then 2000 is a year for research seems still relevant it was like that's that's within like 5 or 60 that's fine and now 2000, it's it's 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. Old research, man. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I often think that now as well. Like stuff where I'm like, oh, this was like recently discovered. Like they just figured this out. No, no. Like it's like... <laughs> it's like, oh, we're just old. It's like a very old paper now. Anyway, but yeah, but that's I really have... cool. Like I, I think it's really cool for the discourse. I, I, I'll keep my eyes open if I see this popping up somewhere. Um, I like in terms of like Yoram, outside Yoram is of sure the sure to write a post on this soon. Like it's, it's <laughs> right up his alley. Like no, but I mean, cynism. like outside of the like the scientific community, this is now interesting. If this will be yeah. picked up by people, like um, yeah, in, that's true. In the whole argument for or against GMO, like that's that's where it gets interesting for like a, on a society level the other thing i saw i was just sort of quickly trolling the um the plant-based articles before we started the podcast and i found something that was published in environmental pollution like maybe a week ago by zihong alian and com colleagues and it's about plant phenology so this is kind of phenology is um, important life events that happen sort of seasonally. So it might be like if you're a bird, you might lay your eggs at a certain time. You want to lay them in spring that your chicks hatch, you know, early in spring and they don't hatch in winter. If you're a plant, some really important like phenological events are things like putting your leaf out when spring happens and then remembering to like turn those leaves yellow or orange and drop them before winter comes so that, you know, your entire tree doesn't fall down because of the wind and you can recycle those nutrients and this is a whole thing in the context of um, climate change because a lot of these events the, the plant is sort of sensing the world around it to know when to for example put the leaf out so it's sort of feeling the amount of light and the amount the the warmth um, and base like using those those stimuli it's it's sort of saying okay now is the time now is when I put my leaf out so this is a bit problematic with climate change. Things are getting warmer faster. Um, so plants are having to put their leaves out earlier than they previously did. And we've got these really amazing long-term records where we can see that like the time that leaves come out has moved earlier and earlier in the year over the last, let's say, 60 years or so. Like it's just mm -hmm. it's qu quite convincing that the plants know the world is getting warmer. <laughs> um, they know and they are prepared. Um, so this is just a study that is called Artificial Light Pollution Inhibits Plant Phenology Advance Induced by Climate Warming. Mm -hmm. And I think you can already tell from the article what they looked at. They were seeing that, yes, plants are 
advancing their their phenology, their leaf out and their leaf dropping, things like this, because of the climate warming. But it's not just temperature that plants are taking into consideration. In the Northern Hemisphere, especially, winter is very dark and summer has a lot of light. So they're also using light input to know when, you know, it's now springtime. Like, oh, look, we're now getting like four hours of sunlight instead of one hour of sunlight. You know, mm-hmm. summer is coming. Things, things are changing. But humans have also not only warmed the entire world, but we've also put a ton of artificial light everywhere so we've you know got cities um which are really screwing things up so this group i think it's one of the first um researchers to look into how artificial night sky luminance so basically street mm-hmm. lights city lights all that stuff is tricking trees into not knowing um hmm. how to, to change their phenology and i think that's kind of an interesting aspect that i hadn't yeah. seen anything on before I I wonder if we can nowadays like mitigate that with like LED lights and so on um, by tuning the wavelengths that we don't mind that they still look like the right color for us but we sort of take out the light with the wavelengths that are interesting to the trees so for the trees it's like oh like all our cities have like green lights in the evening because yeah we as humans can see green light but plants can't really see green lights and then it would. Yeah. fine for us yeah like yes, that. something like that and then maybe even yeah i don't know fine-tune it more that it doesn't look too green and too mm-hmm. too shrekish <laughs> and then um <laughs> then still works works in a way like uh, sort of the opposite of what we do in the greenhouses now where we have these purple lights that are just like red and blue um because we say like we don't need to spend energy on making all of the other wavelengths if the plants don't care for them so maybe we just take all of the wavelengths that plants don't care for and put them in our new street lights even though like yeah i mean that's just like a like a random idea now it's not something that's like feasible or planned to do or anything right now but yeah very interesting that like even sort of this residual light has such a measurable impact i think it's just it's it's always this thing of I mean, humans have changed the world so much and so rapidly, and all these organisms in the world are sort of struggling to try to to deal with things, but they're not just dealing with one thing. It's just there's so many things coming at them at the same time, and often these these impacts sort of compound, and just we're just making their life so hard. Like, it's so hard to be a plant right now. <laughs> yeah, I just imagine, like, you, you... It's like you are an old person... And you have your young grandkids around and they are running your house and everything and everything moves so fast and with like new things happening and you're just like constantly in a state of confusion trying to keep up being like, oh, what, what, what are we doing now? Oh, light at night now? Okay, I guess. Um, so what do I do with this? But even in that scenario, like, the grandchildren, like, you made the children. It's your fault you have grandchildren. Like, the poor okay, plants. Like- other people's grandchildren that <laughs> yeah, are coming exactly. around. <laughs> You're just trying to live there and they like move in in the basement and suddenly um, everything changes quickly and you just yeah. can't keep up anymore. It's just like, what's going on now? What are we doing? Um, oh, there's so many of you now, I guess. Okay. <laughs> um, because I've, I've quickly mentioned something for, about climate change, I do want to bring up my, my friend shared me this sort of like infographic from The Guardian, I think, um, of terms that were used most frequently in UK TV in 2020. <laughs> and you know, I'm going to I'm going to give you some terms. There's like 10 of them and I want you to guess 
Which one ranked the highest? Okay. Ready? Yes. Aviation vaccine picnic biodiversity scotch egg Black Lives Matter dog cake bird NHS climate change cancelled and that's it. Which of those do you think was the most mentioned um, on UK TV in 2020? I mean, I am. It's it's late, so I struggle to fully remember all of the words. But I I heard mm. vaccination. I would imagine vaccination was up there. Um, but I could also imagine five. like spot number five, something random like bird, because then there's just like every time a bird somewhere is mentioned that counts there. Like with like vaccination, you have like a limited set of topics that you're covering. With bird, okay. it could be anything. So it was actually vaccine. Vaccine got forty four thousand mentions. Birds got ninety seven thousand mentions. Birds is spot number three, and vaccine is number five. Shall we try again for number one? So there was also dog. So maybe, but so that many dog stories. Biodiversity, aviation, Black Lives Matter, cancelled picnic, dog, cake, bird, NHS, aviation, scotch egg, and picnic. <laughs> I mean, I can I can see cake from all of like the Bake Off shows that was probably like reported on so much. Nicely done. One higher than birds, one hundred thirty three thousand compared to birds, ninety seven thousand mentions is cake. That's number two. So what is number one? <sighs> Um, As a clue, it was cake birds. Number four is NHS and number five is vaccine. So we've got cake bird, NHS and vaccine. You've still got climate change cancelled, picnic, dog, Black Lives Matter, aviation, scotch, egg and biodiversity. It feels like scotch egg is like, why is it in that list? It must be number one then, but it, I have no explanation for why no, Scotch uh, Egg would be number one. Happily, Scotch Egg is not the top one, but it is higher than biodiversity and <laughs> just a little bit lower than Black Lives Matter. So the, the third lowest ones are Black Lives Matter, Scotch Egg and biodiversity, which is incredibly <laughs> depressing, given that the other words include picnic, birds, cake, dog and aviation. <laughs> top word was dog. 286,000. It's really dog. Um, <laughs> dog, cake, birds, NHS, vaccine, picnic, 40,000. Cancelled, 30,000. Climate change, only 12,000. Aviation, 6,000. Black Lives Matter, 5,000. Scotch Egg, 3,700. And biodiversity, 1.6k. Like, but was that in like news shows or like old TV shows? It is the UK TV, so I'm not sure which is the... Okay, because if it's all like, yeah, then I imagine there's like more shows about like dogs and animals where in general, then there are news shows that talk about the climate crisis. I mean, cake, me the, 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 the title of the article is cake mentioned 10 times more than climate change on UK TV. <laughs> Does that not make you slightly anxious? A little bit, but I can, I find it easy to explain because like, you can fill so much more time in terms of entertainment doing cake-related cake? stuff. I mean, I don't know. There must be spin-offs of or like 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 um, copies of the Bake Off, right? Like, uh -huh. know, like whenever the there's like one, yeah. one TV show that works, then all of the channels make their own version of it. And so I must imagine there's like, in my mind, you you can't watch an hour of British TV without watching some sort of cake-related show. <laughs> Another another key feature of the article is the mention that banana bread was more frequently heard than wind power and solar power combined. 
Sue. Um, I hope you guys enjoy your banana bread because that is where our hopes are resting for 2022. <laughs> uh, yeah, speaking of silly names and stuff, I have like, um, I want to po- uh, uh, point your attention towards like a Twitter thread um under like i saw this prompt um by jason mcdermott uh on twitter it was like name a scientific word or phrase that would make a great band name and i sort of asked our community our followers for like plant science science band names and i had a lot of joy reading through all of the suggestions there um they were many like fun things um i just like i should have listed my favorites before i started here um but also, like, why doesn't it show me all the replies? There's, like, Superior Ovaries, for example, that I quite like uh, as, a, as a band name. The Double Knockouts is uh, cool. And I think uh, the Quiescent Center sounds like a nice indie band to mm, Quiescent. Quiescent Center. I mean, I have to give a shout-out to Scrotum Morphogenesis because Scrotum Morphogenesis is morphogenesis, so, like, movement growth. It's growth that happens in the darkness, and that's basically what I studied for my PhD. So I'm pretty <laughs> I'm pretty pleased with that, but I'm not really convinced it's a good um, a band name, to be honest. <laughs> there, were some really, there were some really good ones. Let me try and find some of the ones that I... Yeah. I, think I was I, very pleased by. I found again like my favorite, um, and that's uh, Carnivorous Sundews. That sounds to me like the perfect name for like an indie band. It has like a little bit of an edge. Somebody put the Monaceous, which I I hate because I can never remember Monoaceous and Dioaceous. I never <laughs> like Monoaceous means you have both on one plant or only one on one plant you have both on one plant like i think i can remember it from like the german thing because in german it's like einhäusig and zweihäusig so one house or two house so in one house both of them live in the same house and that's like mono and in two houses they have like separate bedrooms separate houses for the two sexes i hope i didn't say anything wrong here now it could very well be wrong (laughs) it could be the opposite way but this is how i remember it um so I quite like the wild the wild types is like just such yeah. a it's so simple and so nerdy. I have to give a shout out to that. Um Yeah. That was from um at Tony Gruber. What else really Yeah. Fragmoplastic made... fantastic. I don't know what fragmoplastic means, but that's quite <laughs> impressive. Yeah. Yeah, I just wanted to start many bands. When I had got the replies coming, I was like, "Oh yeah, that that's a band that I would like to be in." Like, I don't really play any instrument in any capacity to be in a band, but um, <laughs> it would like I could see myself be there. I don't know, pretending. It would... Um, somebody gave three different ones, so it's captivate, uh, cavit- cavitating petioles, metastable dwarf, and my favorite was Karakin Pulse. So shout out to that one because it's Karakins. And caracans are these um, chemicals that are found in like smoke water. We've talked about them before. Mm. So it's these like smoky signals that um, stimulate growth in a lot of Australian plants. So I have a little bit of a soft spot for caracans. <laughs> yeah. So that's it. Like if you want to have a little um, inspiration for your own plant science nerd band, um, find a name here make some music and then like link us to it and i'm i'm, I'm happy I, I want to i think i want to listen to like some science punk i would like to see what this sounds like 
I have a few random things. Um, one, I don't even know how I found this, but there was like a man in Florida who planted a banana tree in a pothole <laughs> to make a point. So basically there was a pothole, it wasn't getting fixed and he put a banana tree in there. So now there's a pothole in Florida that has a banana tree. Um, if we have any Florida listeners, please go and find <laughs> this and take a photograph next to the tree. I really... <laughs> I mean, it says for some the tree bring the sight of the tree brings disbelief. Um, fair enough. I I don't see any pictures of this, so I'm not sure what happens. But um, cool. <laughs> cool. It's something to do with your time. Um, a couple of other cool things. I saw a paper in eLife. Um, actually, last week or I, I saw it. Um, and I think it's been doing the rounds on some blogs as well. It's just um, because they use a kind of cool technique that is 3D reconstruction. So they they have this plant which is called Asterozylon macchii. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a plant, but it's not really a plant. It's a preserved plant found from a fossil. Um, and it's a lycop- lycopsid. Sorry. Um, so we've talked before about lycopsids. They're these like really really old group of living vascular plants um which have been all around since since dinosaur times and they they can be quite small um these days like what what exists now are these really small things um that sort of have roots and a little stick and then a little heady bit but back in the day back in the dinosaurs times they could get to be like 50 meter tall and they were like a really dominant life form them and now they're they're much smaller but they're really important for understanding for us now how plants have evolved to this kind of ancestral, um, you know, transitional species to understand how different um, structures within plants have developed. And this publication in eLife, which uh, came out at the end of August and is by Hetherington and colleagues, um, it's basically took this fossil and it sliced it up and then once they had done these slices they made a 3d reconstruction of what this like chunk of plant would look like and i just think it's kind of a nice sort of use of modern technology to visualize something and having this visualization can then help them understand um this plant itself but also like sort of the evolution of plants generally mm-hmm. so it's it's quite nice if you look at the paper you can see the reconstruction they've, they've got a video of how they've reconstructed this all um from the slices and i think it's it's kind of cool I, um i'm always so afraid when i hear these stories about fossils being cut up it's like i get this anxiety of like but it's a fossil it's super rare but i mean um we talked to ali baumgartner uh like the paleont- mm. uh, paleobotanist um and i mean she told us like you like it's hard to find always like the right fossil, but still you can find enough that you can spare some of them to just like cut them up into slices and then analyze them. And also it's like not gone then it's like even elevated sort of in the structure, but still in my mind, I'm I'm like, no, just like put it on a little like cushion and like, and look at it because a fossil is, is pretty and important and rare. Um, so yeah, I could not I work mean, like that <laughs> in that field. I would be too anxious. I do wonder if in the future there will be some better way to do this where you can just like scan the whole piece sort of an x-ray style and understand the imprints from density. I'm not sure. Like maybe in 50 year times we'll be like, oh, we wouldn't even have to do that. We can just like shine this special laser. I I mean, clearly I have no idea about how these things work, (laughs) but you know, futuristic times. Yeah, plasma. We'll put some plasma in there. Um, 
and a fan. But I thought that was anyway a nice, a nice cool yeah. article. Yeah, yeah, no, no, it is really cool. And then um, one final thing to mention on the subject of plants. My mother sent me an article a couple of weeks back um, about we've talked about this before. The fact that bees like the color blue. Mm-hmm. And um, there was something that came out in the conversation, but it's also based on a publication by Garcia and colleagues in the new Phytologist. Um, it's called Fly Pollination Drives Convergence of Flower Color- Coloration. So we know that bees like blue, but we also are sort of interested in what the second dominant, second most dominant group of pollinators, which happens to be flies, are interested in as far as colors. And as it turns out, flies think that yellow is super pretty. They're not as into blue and they think um, yellow is great. And this group was kind of using a a natural experiment to compare how flowers evolved um, depending on whether they wanted to attract flies or bees. And the natural environment, they were looking at one plant family, which happened to be orchids, and um, they were using an area, a geographic region, which was an island where there wasn't any bees. So in that island, like, only flies exist. And they were comparing sort of what happens to flower development, like as far as colors developing over over evolutionary time when bees are not there. Um, and they find that sort of if bees are there, you get these flowers that want to be pollinated by flies. So they sort of converge, they become sort of sort of more fly oriented where there are bees, but then where there are no bees, they can diverge again. They can have sort of more diversity of colors um, to attract, I guess, different types of flies um, on the island mm-hmm. where they don't have to so you're not only signaling yes to the flies, but you also have to signal no to the bees if there are bees there. Mm-hmm. But when the bees are gone, you can just like signal yes to the fly and then you can be like, not just yes to all flies, but that specific fly, like that's the dude I want. Um, <laughs> but you can't necessarily do that if there are bees there because you might be saying, yes, you fly. And you accidentally, by saying yes, you fly, you accidentally get a bee. So I think there's kind of this like weird competition that's happening. Um, that's how I understood it. And I think mm-hmm. this is... This is always the fun thing about evolution. Like it's you you see something and you're like, oh, this is a result of XYZ, but it's never XYZ. It's like XYZ, A, B, C, D. Like there's just so many different <laughs> yes. things feeding into what has made this organism be the way it is. And sometimes we just don't know. Mm-hmm. Sometimes those things that have driven the evolutionary response, they, they don't exist anymore. You know, they went extinct thousands of years ago. And so it's, yeah, we might not know why why is always a very difficult question to ask in any sort of science like why is i just like that there is that there are plants that say no to bees <laughs> that, <laughs> like, no i might be oversimplifying a bit we'll put the links um in the show notes you guys can go and check it out i mean like i think this was like a situation where they didn't really have a choice to say yes to bees also because there, there were no bees so yeah you know is that freedom of will or not <laughs> Like you, you decide, guys. Cat fact. Okay, so my cat fact today is a duck fact, and this is something that I am really embarrassed to say I forgot to mention last week. I saw it myself. I think it was in the nature briefing, and then one of our friends on Instagram also flagged this as very important science that we must be sharing with our <laughs> listeners. Um, it's something that came out in New Scientist, and it's a report of an Australian duck. 
Um, he's a captive moss duck and he has a name. His name is Ripper. Oh, and I've heard that. Yeah. Yeah. He says the phrase, <laughs> you bloody fool, just like a human. And it's basically the fact that um, musk ducks, when they hatch, they, they, they mimic. They sort of, I guess, to fit in or I guess just as, as part of their normal upbringing, they mimic the sounds they hear. And this musk duck was um, exposed to a, a catchphrase of one of his caretakers, which was, you bloody fool. And so the duck can now not only say you bloody fool, but it can also do things like imitating a door closing or banging, coughing, um, pony snorting, um, which is all fine. But, you know, let's be, let's be realistic. Hearing a duck say you bloody fool is definitely... The most impressive thing and, and what you want to spend your time doing on the internet today. So we'll put the link there. I know like I, I know you're listening to me right now and you're like, sure Tegan, but is it really you bloody f-? like I don't believe you. But it really is a very convincing duck, I have to say. Yeah, you're you back so. me up. <laughs> no? I I like I listened to it um like when I when I saw the story, I thought about like stealing the sound and putting it in a podcast and everything, but I couldn't hear it, and I'm just like pulling it up now again for me, and I will like I will play the thing now in the in the recording, like in this podcast. You can judge it for yourselves. Yeah, like yeah. No, I think last time I didn't listen with headphones on. So like, yeah, it's more convincing, but still, it's like, it's it sounds to me like what like the Laurel Yanni game that we had. Like, <laughs> I don't know how long ago, where like depending on what you're imprinted on, you can hear that. So I imagine if you put something else, it sounds a little bit like you bloody fool. And he said like he's like saying it. Um, my my body's cool and then you're like oh yeah he's totally saying my body's cool my body's cool um but yeah it's it's still cool like i didn't know that that ducks can imitate sounds like that i mean it doesn't sound like a duck definitely the, f- the famous thing is the lyre birds which can do sort of like chainsaw or, or like mm-hmm. there's the there's david attenborough documentary which shows these these lyre birds imitating like mobile phones or a camera shutter i think it's like that makes this and this is really like it's a bit more impressive than Ripper the Duck. I'm going to be honest. Like, yeah. Ripper is fine. The Lyrebird's better. No, um, for a duck, it's very impressive. For a duck. I mean, ducks, like, let's be fair. Ducks, they can already both swim and fly and walk on land. And that's pretty much more than almost all organisms can do. So <laughs> if you can't say you bloody fool properly, we're going to give you a pass on this one. Like, it's Yeah. Also, it's they, fair. They, they can dive a little bit and hold their breath for a while. It's like... They're pretty much dinosaurs also. Like, I don't know if you know that, but like... Yeah. Duck, dinosaur, duckosaur, same, same. <laughs> I do think, I mean, it says sort of like, it says, you bloody fool, you bloody fool. And I do, in my head, when I hear a former fair caretaker's catchphrase, you bloody fool, I'm not hearing, you bloody fool. I'm hearing like, oh, you bloody fool. <laughs> like, that's... Yeah, but maybe that's the voice I'm hearing. Maybe the caretaker was saying that with like a more loving voice because like maybe the duck was just like spilling the food from the little beaker the food was in, and it was just like, oh, you bloody fool! You you made a mess now. Now you have to pick it, eat it all from the ground with like the dirt mixed in. 
Um, instead of like, I suddenly became very anxious of what would happen if there's a cat I visit every day. It's, it's on the Instagram quite often if you guys are following us on Instagram, but I I see it almost every day, and every day I tell it what a beautiful cat it is, and I just I, if if that is cat is learning how to speak from me, <laughs> it is saying such inane things like. <laughs> I mean, I think all cats are like my cats will also say lots of like very nice things of like oh you're like, so fluffy you're so fluffy mm, let yeah. me touch the fluff are you the most you're the most beautiful are you the yeah. most perfect pussy cat in the world yes you're the most perfect oh look how beautiful you are. no don't bite me oh you're so beautiful oh so perfect <laughs> what a perfect pussy cat it's just like sometimes I hear and like I'm saying this out loud on the street and sometimes people walk past and I'm just like. It's fine. I have no shame now. Like I've <laughs> passed thirty. It's been eighteen months of of crazy COVID. Like I think people who don't talk like this to animals and to all animals, they're they're psychopaths. Like I talk to this to dogs, um, to to pigs. Like we re- like last weekend we went on like stayed a night on a little farm and there are like pigs and ducks and go- geese and everything. And I talk to all animals like that as if they're. See, I don't, I don't feel that way about dogs. I just don't have that like, like, like. I we talked about this before, but I mean, like, yeah, rationally. I don't care for dogs, but then if there's a dog jumping around, I'm also like petting it and being like, oh yeah, you're a lovely dog, you're great. I'm lying to it, essentially. That's what I'm doing. <laughs> you're building up its self-esteem. Dogs already have self-esteem. Why are you giving it more self-esteem? <laughs> I think with that, um, we are at the end of the show <laughs> before we go back into the, the, the rant of me not liking dogs too much. Um, if you want to uh, get in contact with us. You can reach us on social media. As you, as you heard, like on, on Instagram with Tegan, you get lots of cat pictures and also like, to be honest, also very cool plant pictures. Where is that? Uh, at Plants and Pipettes. And on Twitter, you get um, stolen prompts from other accounts. That's from me. That's at Plants Pipettes. <laughs> <laughs> we also have a website and, and, and blog. That's plantsandpipettes.com. Where you can we have we have a pretty big collection by now of of cool stories from the world of plant science, like for example the sea slug story that we mentioned today, but also many other cool um, stories from molecular um, plant biology. Opening and closing music is Caravana by Philip Gross, and goodbye. Goodbye.